Well, good morning. Um, we're going to get rolling here um, by looking at Daniel 10 through 12, hopefully as a unit, um, because it really is one big unit. But let me pray and we'll get started. Father, we're thankful for this morning. We're thankful that we um, have life this morning. We know that's a gift from you, that you are the one who breathes life into us, and you are the one who takes it from us, and we pray um, that we would be ever dependent upon you this morning, um, continually thankful for you, um, that we would desire nothing more than to dwell in your presence, um, to hear you speak in your word by the Spirit. We pray that you would um, this morning, even as we look at Daniel together, uh, give us clarity as we um, read and think about this text, um, help us to be transformed by the renewing of our minds as we do, um, so that we would um, honor you, uh, that we would do what is good and right in accord with your will. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, good morning. Well, let me, let me try to give you a, a, bit, a bit of a review this morning, just because I think it's important that we remember where we are, because this last section, um, I've been arguing, in fact, this whole time, that we have quite a bit of, quite a bit of repeating that's happening here, um, and so I want to make sure that we're paying attention to that as far as, the, as far as the fact that Daniel's really revealing to us one vision, and he's revealing it to us in, a, in more than one way, and what I mean is each time we get a new revelation of something contained in the, that larger vision, you might get a splice, uh, you know, it's like a, sort of like a slice of it somewhere in the context of the history of that, that, grand, that grander revelation. So let's talk about what that is. If we remember, Daniel is uh, prophesying during the exile. So Israel has been exiled for her sin. Um, she has been wicked, violating God's law over and over and over again, as you guys probably remember. And then she's told, you're going to be exiled for, um, for 70 years. You're going to be exiled for 70 years so the land can have its Sabbaths. Remember, there's a Sabbath every seven years, so the land can have its every seventh year Sabbath. You're going to be um, exiled for 70, um, 70 years. And then he's praying about that and wanting to know when that's coming to an end, which we saw in Daniel 9, and he's told, well, 70 more sevens. Um, and so we got into some of that. But during the story of Daniel, you're getting this kind of contest language. Um, in Daniel 1, the, the boys are carried off. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, arguably in 605 BC. Um, but the full conquering of, of Jerusalem uh, and, and Judah is around 586 or so BC. Um, so that, that Nebuchadnezzar has come into that area at that time. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are trained as magi, as you guys remember. Um, so that's in, we, we're reading about that in chapter 1. When we get to chapter 2, um, we, we start off with a vision, but something changes. You guys remember what I told you about changes about the nature of the language of the text? Come chapter 2? Anybody? What, what was it? Yeah, so it transitions from Hebrew to Aramaic. And chapters 2 through 7 are all in Aramaic. Um, chapter 1 is in Hebrew. Chapter 8 through 12 are in Hebrew. Um, 
And chapters 2 through 7 are marked out a particular way. And I want to remind you guys of that. So I've, I've talked to you about chaotic structures before. But chapter 2, um, I'm just going to put Daniel, uh, chapter 2 is A. And then I'll put B for Daniel 3, um, C for Daniel 4, C prime for Daniel 5. And then I'll just remind you, B prime for Daniel 6, and A prime for Daniel 7. Now you say, okay, what, what was I referring to here uh, when I did this chiastic structure? If you remember, what are Daniel 3 and Daniel 6 about? These two, these two are parallel. What are they both about? Daniel 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, are thrown where? In the fire furnace, where they will not worship the image of Nebuchadnezzar, right? So we have that scene. And in that scene, we get the um, contest language between Yahweh and, and Nebuchadnezzar. And Yahweh and Nebuchadnezzar's gods to some degree. You guys follow me on that? The Babylonian gods. All right. Daniel 6, you get what story? The lion's den. So Daniel in the lion's den. Okay. Now here, um, that's under uh, King Darius. So Medo-Persia has come in, conquered the area. King Darius is, it gives a law of the Medes and Persians. What's the law? Yeah, no one's to pray to God, uh, but only, you know, you basically have to give up these prayers to your gods or to Yahweh, etc. Daniel goes home, throws the windows open so everybody can see, and he prays. Um, now, he's thrown in the lion's den, and he's saved from that, right? In both cases, what you have that's similar is, as God's per- people, either Daniel's friends or Daniel, under persecution by wicked pagan nations... Um, you're getting examples of what faithfulness looks like to the Lord, right? Godliness. These men are willing to risk their lives. Um, they're willing to risk everything to continue to follow the Lord. And the Lord is ultimately redeeming them from those situations, um, rescues them. Though, though you remember in the, the speech of the three friends, they don't have an expectation necessarily that God will. Our God will, will rescue us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow down to that statue, right? Okay, so... Daniel 4 and 5, if you remember, Daniel 4 is um, where Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind, right? Um, I'll just put this word, Nebi goes crazy, right? So he loses his mind, he becomes like an animal, he loses essentially human rationality, he's eating the grass, whatever, um, because of his pride. By the end of Daniel 4, he repents. You guys remember that, okay? Daniel 5, you have Who? Belshazzar, good. And what does Belshazzar do? He, 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 he's prideful too, right? Just like Nebuchadnezzar is. The difference is um, the Lord just takes him out. Many, many tekel parson, right? You've been weighed, you've been found wanting, and basically tonight's the end for you. Um, and there's a contrast here between these two. Um, the contrast seems to be God will be merciful to whom he will and God will... God will judge whom he will. In the case of Nebuchadnezzar, he brings him repentance and restores him. In the case of 
Belshazzar, he just strikes him dead. Um, either way, God is sovereign over these kings. Turns the king's heart where he wills. He sets up, remember that I told you the, probably one of the theme verses, he sets up kings and he deposes them. You guys remember that? Okay. He sets them up, he deposes. Very clear. Now, important message. Think about the messaging. You're people in exile under oppression by the Babylonian kingdom, by the Medo-Persian kingdom. And you're being given the example of men who will not bow the knee to false gods, who will continue to faithfully worship the Lord um, and keep his law. By the way, you also get that picture in Daniel 1. Daniel won't eat particular foods, if you guys remember that. Okay, get that. That's not a diet plan. Just as a reminder, that's just that's actually Jewish law in Daniel being faithful. And here you get the picture of uh, foreign kings are not, foreign kings are, they're in the, under the control of God. They, they're not what all they, they think they are. So that are oppressing you and you're being taught all of this, right? Bracketing all of this in Daniel 2 and 7, if you remember, Dan, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about a statue and out of that statue, we get, from the statue, we learn about four kingdoms, right? So I'm just going to put four kings, four kingdoms, followed by what? Yeah, this mountain, right, that comes out of the stone. We're just going to call it the kingdom of Theos, or the kingdom of God, right? It's going to follow that. And then down here, Daniel has a vision of four beasts, okay? That also represents the four kings now, or the four kingdoms. Now, each of the beasts is contorted because they're wicked. It's the corruption of sin. And it, in some way, that contorted beast describes that kingdom. So um, the, the bear, Medo-Persia, is high up on one side because the Persian Empire is larger, the por- larger portion than the Median Empire side. But they're a combined empire. But you get four beasts followed by what? Or four kingdoms followed of man, followed by, again, the kingdom of God, right? Uh, particularly as the Son of Man comes to the Ancient of Days. So you get, specifically in Daniel 7, where you get some extra clarification is you learn about this little horn that's going to come um, in the fourth kingdom. And you learn about the Son of Man who's going to come and, and uh, be given especially Daniel 7, 13, and 14, as he comes to the ancient days, he's been given authority over every kingdom and power, tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. You guys remember that? Okay. And these match. What, what you're learning here, I'm just going to re- remind you, because sometimes you get bogged down in the details of Daniel and lose sight of the big picture. What you're learning, is, and I'm, I'm setting this up because we're going to get there again to the angels, um, this, these odd passages. But what you're learning here is... As a people in exile, the Lord is sovereign over the kings. The Lord will um, care for his people. You need to be faithful to him. Don't bow down to these wicked kings. If you're going to be thrown into the fire furnace, the lion's den, whatever, just continue to follow Yahweh. He'll deliver you ultimately, whether he delivers you from that particular trial or not. Um, He sets up kings. He deposes them. There are four kings, and you get this eschatological lesson. There are four kingdoms. To come and then the kingdom of God. So, so you have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then Rome, right? And then as soon as the Roman Empire is essentially interrupted and ended by the kingdom of God, which is to come. And we know that kingdom of God is coming 
um, with this one who's like the Son of Man. If you guys remember that language. Um, in the Roman Empire. Now, when you get to Daniel 8, then, you're getting a vision of what? Anybody remember? He's getting a vision. It doesn't go outside these kingdoms. What's it a vision of? Medo-Persia and then Greece. With a particular focus on Greece and some, some, so it's a focus on the second and third kingdoms, right? With a particular focus on Greece, uh, particularly as it drives to the little horn of the third kingdom. Now, the little horn of the third kingdom is not the same as the little horn of the fourth kingdom, but he's like him. So you're given a little horn in the third kingdom. Daniel 7, you have a little horn in the fourth kingdom. Um, but they're, they're like one another. They do similar sorts of things. They, they look the same. In both cases, you're, you're told about three and a half years. Time, times, and half a time, or, you know, a certain number of days, 1,200 whatever days. You know, you're getting these kind of numbers, all of which somehow break in, into a, a, half of a, a half of a full period. A full period would be seven, right? And so they all break into some kind of half of a full period. You get that in eight. When you get to chapter nine, Daniel's now praying in light of the fact that he's looking at it going, hey, this is... The Medo-Persians have come into power. Babylon's been overthrown. Jeremiah told, told, tells us that when, when the Medo-Persians come into power, um, our exile's about to end. So then he goes into prayer, repenting on behalf of Israel, in accord with Leviticus, saying, Lord, forgive us. Let us be restored to the land. Let us rebuild the temple, etc. You guys remember that? Okay, so he's praying for that. In light of what he's seeing especially as he keeps in keeping with Jeremiah's prophecy. He's praying for when are we going to be restored? Now he wants to know when Israel is going to be restored, and he prays specifically for when is the second exodus coming? In other words, they've been, from Isaiah and other places, they've been told there's a second exodus coming, greater than the first exodus, right? And it's going to usher, it's going to, if you will, take us out of um, uh, being crushed by the kingdoms of men and, and usher us into the kingdom of God. We're going to have an exodus out of those kingdoms of men into the kingdom of God. When's that coming? And he's told 70 more sevens have been decreed. Now we broke that period down. So when we come to chapter 10 uh, through 12, what I want you to understand is you're getting another picture of some similar periods of time. But I, I, I want to look at those in light of what we've just said. So um, when you're in 10, you get an angelic visitation. Daniel's going to be praying. The angel's going to come visit him. In 11, you're going to get descriptions of the second and third kingdom again. The second kingdom is described really quickly. We'll look at that. And then the third kingdom is described in some depth. That's Greece, particularly driving you to Antiochus Epiphanes IV, um, the little horn of the third kingdom who in some way um, is a type of the little horn of the fourth kingdom. He looks like him. He seems like him. He does the kind of things he does. And then in Daniel 12, um, you're going to get sort of the summation of this. So let's look at Daniel 10 together. Um, we're really focused on the second and third kingdom in Daniel's 10 through 12, really focused on the second and third kingdom as typological of the latter days. Okay, you guys remember this phrase, latter days? We've been looking at it since Genesis 49. If you've been in deeper since Genesis, 
We've been talking about the latter days since Genesis 49. There's the former days. Those are the days of the old creation. And there's the latter days. Those are the days of the new creation. Um, Genesis 49 tells us about the coming latter days. Um, Numbers 24 tells us about the latter days. Isaiah 2, etc. tells us about the latter days. These days that are to come, um, which Peter tells us have begun in Acts chapter 2 at the pouring out of the Spirit, because the new creation's begun. It's been started, but not consummated, right? So we've been looking at that. Um, so now we're looking at this coming type in the second and third kingdom of the latter days. So look at Daniel 10. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so we're in the second kingdom. You guys follow that? Um, that's Medo-Persia. A word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. Remember, he's been named that by these pagan kings, after the word was true, and the word was true, and it was a great conflict, and he understood the word and had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the, river, of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Uphaz around his waist. His body was like beryl, his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like the uh, sound of a multitude. Okay, let's stop for a minute. Why is he mourning and fasting and doing this? Why is he doing that? Correct. Very good, Tim. So the Persians are in power now for three years, but yet they haven't been returned. So he's, he's, he's still praying about this. He's quite, he's quite serious that he knows Israel needs to go back. And so he's mourning and fasting and praying, um, hoping for the Lord to return them. Now this figure comes to him. This, this angelic messenger comes to him to speak to him and has descriptions that are going to be applied to the Christ in Revelation. Um, now, some folks want to say, therefore, this figure is, is the Christ pre-incarnate. Um, I'm not prepared to argue that. Minimally, I'm prepared to argue that, of course, the messengers who represent God are going to take on characteristics of 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 him as they represent him holiness righteousness truth etc um the reason some will go there is they're going to go particularly as you see michael the the archangel or michael this angel who's the prince they're going to some scholars will argue that michael is actually um means who is like god he's he's actually a representation of the pre-incarnate christ um and they'll run all kinds of places with that. I don't, I don't know that that's a particularly convincing argument, but it definitely has some merit to it. I'll put it that way. It's not like it's without merit. Um, so there, there's, there's a reason why good men have held it. Verse 7, And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled, they fled to hide themselves. 
So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. Then I heard the sound of his words, and as I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. Um, Now, if you remember this, every time Daniel runs into an angel, what happens? He gets super tired and falls to the ground to sleep. Um, This kind of appearance of an angelic um, figure seems to be somehow he's gotten exhausted from prayer and repentance and then this encounter, whatever this is, um, have all come together. Verse 10, and behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God, before your God, your words have been heard and I've come because of your words. Now, um, let me, let me ask you guys a question for a minute before I keep going. Um, how is Daniel addressed? As a man greatly loved. Um, is Daniel a faithful, godly Christian man? Yes, but he's not um, addressed as, fear not, O Daniel, obedient one, right? The emphasis is on the Lord loves you, not aren't you amazing, you, you, you guys follow what I'm saying? The Lord, the Lord loves you. Um, you're a man greatly loved. And from the moment you started praying, what does he say? From the, huh? Yeah, God was listening. Your, your prayers were being heard from the moment you started praying. Um, Jesus is going to pick up on this kind of a notion. Later on, he talks about your father, who's a good father, um, loves his children, etc., He's the, you don't have to babble, go on babbling like the pagans do. You guys remember that? Um, as if multiplying words is going to make him hear you. You know, he hears you. So it's going to go on. Um, verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Likely then this is a ref- this is a reference to Gabriel. And came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. Again, so the latter days. Now, let's talk about this for a second. Let's look at that again. Verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. Okay. Um, what's happening here? So you, you guys following that? Um, I, I was, your, your prayer was heard right away and I was coming to answer, but, um, I had to finish, uh, you know, I was contending with the, the King of Persia and then Michael came and helped me out with that. And now I'm here. This, this language is a little bit odd. Is it, is it not? What, what somehow, um, either, an angel, some scholars argue, an angel, this angel, likely Gabriel, is struggling 
in his work against the king of Persia, human king of Persia, and Michael is coming to um, intervene and help out, um, or somehow there is an angel associated with the king of Persia whom, you know, by, by angel in this case would be not a good one, right? A wicked one who's associated with the king of Persia whom this angel is struggling against, whom Michael, another angel, is going to come and help out. Um, if you ask me what's happening, I don't entirely know because I just have what's happening here. Either there's three angels struggling who are associated with, with this warfare in the kingdom of Persia, or there's one human king with two angels struggling against him. Um, the, the grammar permits either. Um, the question is, what's the answer? Yes, sir. Well, potentially, that's what some people will argue. It's, 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 it's difficult to, for me to ultimately know what's happening other than to say um, there's more happening than we are aware of or than we see. So here's where you, here's where you want to go with this. Uh, we are wrestling against our war battle, Paul will say in Ephesians 6, is against principalities and powers. So the, the notion that what you see happening in um, uh, America, let's say, let's take the American governmental situation with our current leaders is merely what's happening in this earthly human realm that you can see is false. There's more going on here than you're aware of. When you see the church being persecuted in some part of the earth by some wicked king, the notion that that's just a wicked human leader and there's nothing demonic happening there is likely a false one. Right? When you have a, a religious leader who's teaching the church falsely, and you think that's just a human religious leader, that's false. So, for example, what does Paul tell you in first? Thank you, Joel. You're, you're at it already. First Timothy 4 with the false teachers who were saying, you know, you shouldn't get married, you shouldn't eat these things. What does Paul refer to their doctrine as? Doctrine Doctrines of demons. Now, that's targeted at Hymenaeus and Alexander some elders in the church in Ephesus who have to be removed. Um, and he's saying essentially behind their activity is, de- is demons. Um, so when we talk about the, those who cause disruption and, and um, error in the church, to, to assume there is no demonic activity there is a bad assumption. When you talk about what's happening in struggles of empires, even, even among you know, wicked empires and their mistreatment of Christian people, for example, um, to assume there's no demonic activity there is a bad assumption. This is really difficult for us because we're modernists. Um, we just think everything is, is w- what we can see, taste, touch, feel, hear, etc. Is, is all there actually is. That's our default position. Even as Christians, that's our default position, Right? And we have to fight against that notion because that's not what Paul tells us. He actually says our war is against principalities and powers. Now, that's largely a truth war. In other words, the, the vast majority of what these demons are doing is lying. 
The other thing you, you don't, we don't think about is that the Lord is often fighting our battles with his angels. So we think, oh, just the Holy Spirit will come. Yeah, but sometimes the Holy Spirit is sending the angels to battle. Um, I have no idea what all it looks like. So let me not, let's, let's, let's deal with another issue. This is not licensed to then say, now God has given me the gift of seeing the spirit realm and I can see the demonic hordes and the angelic <laughs> host and I can see their ranks and you know where people go crazy places with this stuff, right? Okay, so there's, there's I, I was actually at a, well, I'll just say it because public paper, J.P. Moreland, a known, well-known apologetics philosophy professor, um, wrote a wrote a helpful book called Scaling the Secular City. Is that right, Tim? Scaling the Secular City, I think. Yeah. Um, respectable professor on a number of levels. I went to an ETS paper, Evangelical Theological Society. A bunch of scholars get together, present papers. He presented, and it was a packed room, and I was standing there next to several folks, um, actually fairly well, some fairly well-known scholars, and I'm standing there next to them, and J.P. Moreland proceeds to tell us all that while he was a professor at Talbot, um, School of Theology, he became demon-possessed. Um, and um, while demon-possessed, he was you know, under this terrible time, and he went to a vineyard church. They, they freed him from the demon possession, and, but as a result of that, now he can see the spirit realm, and he can identify the various demons and angels and their leadership, and he can see it all the ranks and you know um at that point we we move from scholarship to just playing crazy right um it, there were problems on that and with that on a number of levels that you so you see that sort of craziness this is what i want to warn us against you see that sort of craziness and the default is to run over to pure naturalism as if nothing supernatural is happening. You have to guard your heart against that. Um, to some degree, there's an instinct among that kind of, those kind of crazy people that you ought to share, which is the instinct that there's more going on here than I can see. Because the Bible tells you there's more going on here than you can see. <laughs> All right, okay. Um, there are angels and there are demons, and they are really fighting. And in some ways, they're really involved, with, even at national levels or with empires. And clearly, they're involved in lying to Christ's people. From Genesis three one, their main activity is lying. Right. Um, all the way through the New Testament, you constantly hear the demons come up as being liars. Demon possession comes up in the Gospels and once in Acts, but it's pretty rare. You can't find it in the whole of Scripture other than the Gospels and Acts once, um, demon possession. So why does that happen so abundantly comparatively in the Gospels and Acts? Probably because the Christ has come and he's pouring out a spirit and there's a clash between the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of God that are immediately found in the person of Christ, which we'll look at in the New Testament um, and you're seeing this kind of explosion of activity around that, those two kingdoms coming into a clash with each other. So you'll see it. The demons know it. They, in fact, you can see it in their, their responses to when Christ comes into places, right? Is it the time? They're, they're asking. So, all right. Um, which means they're, they're, they're somewhat aware of eschatology, aren't they? Um, fascinating. All right, so let's keep going. 
Um, but the vision is for the days not yet to come or latter days, verse 14. So remember, I'm telling you guys that even the stuff you're going to see in these visions is typological in some way of what's to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, verse 15, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said, O man greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke, I was strengthened and said, let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? But now I'll return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side except the, uh, against these except Michael, your prince. Okay, so that, that's Michael's contending with him, this, um, this particular angelic figure. Michael's contending with him. He's going to leave and fight the prince of Persia. Uh, but while he does, the prince of Greece will come. Um, so you're getting an indication that somehow there are angelic slash demonic beings attached to these different kingdoms, right? What Daniel's doing for you is he's pulling back the, 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 the curtain a little bit and saying these four kingdoms or these four beasts, you know, these four kingdoms are actually, um, this isn't just something happening um, among human kings you're seeing, there's, there's demonic activity happening here. Um, are you guys following that? Um, so again, you're a people in exile. I'm going to keep reminding you, you're a people in exile. You're wondering what's coming of God's promises to you. And he's like, listen, be faithful. Don't worship false gods. I set up kings. I depose kings. I'm here with you. I'm bringing the kingdom of God. Here's how it's going to come. I know that you don't know what's going on, but actually there's a whole spiritual war occurring these wicked, among these wicked kings. You guys follow me on that? And I'm sending the angels to deliver you. Do you hear the promises? I know that we don't think this way, but you hear the promises to God's people that you can't see what all God's up to, but, but he's, he's, he's at work right now. And they're being told that. They're being told that. They're being reminded of that. Um, even in the way the Lord is coming to specific, expressly to Daniel. Yes, sir. Man, man, going back just a bit, but is it any significance that you talk about the kings of Persia, like the, like the prince, and in the later section, he says the princess, like oh, maybe that it's human. He's actually battling... It's possible. It's possible. There's just like a little change of language. There is. It's difficult because if the if you if you go across the English translations, you get some diff, different language. So there are a lot who will translate this in a way that indicates these are that that the king of Persia, the king of king of Greece, etc., are human kings. And then there are um, there are those who will translate it as. As, as tipping it off toward the fact that it's some kind of angelic, demonic presence. So this may be a translation. It might be. It's, it's not an easy passage. Just, I'm just going to put it out there. 
There's a reason why Daniel's one of those books people fight over all the time, right? Some, some books, you guys know that, are fought over more than others, partly because um, we're not given enough information to entirely know what to do with them all the time. Um, like when I get to Genesis 6-1, I'm going to land on the fact that the sons, I know this because I've already studied it, but when I preach, you're going to hear me, I'm going to land on the fact that the sons of God are the sons of Seth. But there are good scholars going all the way back to the second century who think they're um, demons, right? Um, who are sleeping with women. Uh, so like Irenaeus, pretty significant church father, um, second century guy. He, you, you're you're going to see those, and some of the best scholars, even modern scholars now, are going to say these are demons sleeping with women because of the Hebrew language. I'm going to argue it's sons of God are actually the sons of Seth, but I think that's my position's right. At the end of the day, does it make a lot of difference? No, because the bottom line is something wicked is happening, <laughs> and the Lord's dealing with it, right? Um, so I think it makes some difference in the way you understand the whole of the Pentateuch, but I don't know that it, I don't know that at the end of the day, either one is theologically, um, as to what the general flow of the story is, makes a huge difference. Um, and so the only trouble I have with the angelic view is that it, it does something, I, I can't understand how demons would lust sexually because they're non-corporeal beings so that's but so you'll you'll see me you know come to genesis 6 and wrestle with that a bit um and say largely here's here's my conclusion um but you know so augustine and aquinas etc think there's no way these are these are demons right so you have some of your best thinkers in history think they were some of your best thinkers in church history think they weren't it's a difficult passage Irenaeus is one of the great greats for sure. I mean, he's the first guy who gives us anything resembling a biblical theology, laying out the story of Genesis to Revelation. Um, he's he's an incredibly important figure in church history. So, but I, my point is, you've got this passage is similar to that. We don't entirely know. Here's what we can be utterly confident of: Daniel's telling. God's people, and God, through Daniel, is telling God's people, there's a lot more going on here than you're aware of, and I'm in control of all of it, right? Um, you need to hear that. You look at the current president I, or our state government. You know, our state government just passed out of committee into, into the floor of the assembly a bill that allows them to, that, that disallows investigation of the termination of children up to four weeks post-delivery, so if a baby is aborted up to a month after being born, um, it will be Ill- if it goes all the way through, it will be illegal, but it came out of committee. It will be illegal to investigate that. That's called infanticide. Now, what kind of perverse, corrupt human beings come up with laws like that, right? Um, and I think what Daniel teaches you is there's a lot more going on here than you're probably aware of. If you think it's demonic, probably because it is. <laughs> you, guys, you guys follow me on that? Um, so I know we just want to make it all human wickedness, but, but there's, there's a lot going on here. So 
Um, I hope the bill doesn't get all the way through, but it looks poised to get all the way through um, legalizing infanticide in California. That's, that's insane. Um, The world, the flesh, and the devil. It's hard for us to, the third one tends to whatever that means. Yeah. True. I don't know where my temptation is, you know. Yeah. From me, is it from outside of me? But we know there are all those, those three. It's hard to differentiate in temptation. It it's hard, yeah. We just know that that's what needs to be fought against. Correct. Well, you know that's what needs to be fought against, and we need to know that God is fighting these battles for us. Um, and that's what Daniel's learning. Hey, that, that these battles are actually being fought with these wicked kingdoms. God is sending these angels to fight on behalf of his people against these wicked kingdoms. You guys, you guys following that? So we need, to, we need to keep that in mind. It's happening all around us. Um, but yeah, I just want to emphasize, if you think that seems demonic, it's probably because it is. You just got to move past the fact that, that that sounds crazy to a modern scientific mind. Um, there, I don't know how else you explain some of the absurd decisions that get made that are just wicked, right? Um, how do you explain a Hitler? You could say man is just that wicked, and that's true, but... There's got to be more going on there, I, I would think. I think you have to say that that man was demonic, right? At least influenced. So, um, verse, chapter 11, verse 1, the second kingdom. I'll just show you how brief the second kingdom is mentioned. Um, and as for me, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. Notice that, this, the, <laughs> the angels confirming and strengthening Darius the Mede. Um, and now I will show you the truth. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong um, through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Okay, so there, there's kings coming in Persia, and then they're gonna want, the, the final one will be richer than them all will stir up um, everyone against the kings of Greece. Um, and that's all you hear about Medo-Persia because stirring up Greece was a bad idea. That's what you're, <laughs> that's what you're learning, right? And here comes Alexander the Great, just mentioned briefly, more in chapter 8 than actually here. Verse 3, Then a mighty king shall arise who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. Um, he's described in chapter 8 as being able to sweep across the land with much speed and then dying being cut off young, and his kingdom being divided in four, which is what happens to Alexander the Great, but we'll look here. Um, And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided toward the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority with which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up and go to others besides these. So if you remember Alexander the Great's kingdom is divided into four, Um, he dies relatively young. Um, He's in He's an impressive figure in world history, not a godly one, but an impressive figure in world history um, who's cut short, right? You remember, everybody remembers who Aristotle was tutored by, taught by, anybody remember? Uh, Aristotle, sorry. Alexander was tutored by Aristotle, right? I gave you the answer up front. 
Alexander was tutored by Aristotle, right? He gives us the Greek language to rule the empire, um, which is how the gospel spreads so quickly, incidentally. Um, Again, the providence of God. You're being reminded the providence of God. Even when the Roman Empire comes and conquers and rules and spreads and spreads out all over the world, with, they, they spread out the, the Pax Romana and the Roman roads. And, and again, these wicked empires make it really, really um, easy for the gospel to, to spread around the world. Um, and, and, and the Lord's behind that. He's behind that. So, all right, goes on. Uh, and he's going to read about the king of the south and the king of the north and their fights. Um, and, and you're going to get a kind of conclusion. The third kingdom is really summed up in verses 3 and 4. And then you're given a series of kings from verses 5 through 20. Um, in those series of kings, it's, um, there's, there's some fighting that happens. But let's look at Antiochus Epiphanes again, verse 21. He becomes, Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth becomes, and I spent a lot of time on him with, Maccabee, with Maccabees, etc. already, so I won't spend a lot of time here, but I want you to see um, the discussion of him because um, he's important. And one of the questions is, why is this king that Daniel's talking about, who in Daniel's, who's 300 years after Daniel, just over 300 years after Daniel's life, um, he comes along. Why is he being emphasized so much in the book of Daniel, this, this little horn in the third kingdom? Any guesses? Because he's the yeah, because he's a type of the Antichrist. His behavior is going to look just like the Antichrist's behavior is going to look. He's going to come in and set up a false idol for worship in the, in the temple. He's going to slaughter a pig there and worship Zeus. And he's going to slaughter God's people. He's going he's to convince them to team up with him. And then he's going to turn on them and slaughter them. And so you're seeing this kind of um, type, this picture in history of the coming Antichrist. So he's emphasized. All right, verse 20. Then he shall arise, then shall arise in his place one who shall send an extra, exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. In his place, here we go, verse 21, Antiochus. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. And from, that, from the time that an alliance is made with him, with him, he shall act deceitfully and he shall become strong with a small people. Without warning, he shall come into the rich, richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither fa- his fathers nor his fathers' fathers have done, scattering among them the plunder, spoil, and goods. He shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the king of the south with a great army. And the king of the south, that's going down into Egypt, so the Ptolemaic Tol- area. Um, and the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for the two kings, their hearts shall be bent on doing evil. They shall speak lies at the same table, but to no avail, for the end is yet to be at the appointed time. And he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. 
at the time appointed he shall return and come into the south. But it shall not be this time as it was before, for ships of Katim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw, and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who forsook the holy or forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortress, and shall take away the regular burnt offering, and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. What, in other words, in some way he's teamed with the people. He's teamed, well, by the people I mean Israel. In some way he's partnered with them for some time, and then he turns on that. Just saying, Antiochus Epiphany is going to come up, he's going to be partnered with them for some time, he's going to turn on that. Which you see language of that, um, in the 77s, he makes a covenant with the people and then he breaks the covenant, etc. But that's not talking about the third kingdom, little horn. That's talking about the fourth kingdom, little horn. And so why, again, we're gonna, I want to get to this important. The third kingdom, little horn, is being described in terms just like the Antichrist was. He's, he's showing you what the Antichrist is to be like, the fourth little horn. Right, or the fourth kingdom, little horn, if you will. Um, he makes remember in the fourth kingdom, little horn will make a covenant with the people, and and, a, and half a, and for a week, and then halfway through the week he'll break it, and then he'll set up the abomination that makes desolate makes desolate in the temple. You guys remember that? Well, he's saying Antiochus Epiphanes the fourth is operating in the same way. He makes covenant with God's people with Israel, then he turns on them, breaks the covenant with them, sets up the abomination that makes desolate in the temple, makes desolate in the temple. He's behaving just like he's a type of the Antichrist. Um, he'll go, he goes on, verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who... So he's going he's gonna to flatter um, the people who just say, we're going to violate God's covenant, <laughs> right? Um, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make many understand, though for some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, <coughs> When they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to, to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished, for what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women. He shall not pay attention to any other god, for he shall magnify himself above all. He shall honor the god of fortresses instead of these. A god whom his fathers did not know, he shall honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. He shall deal with the strongest fortress with the help of a foreign god. Those who acknowledge him shall load him with honor. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. You guys see, he's just a wicked idolater. Flattering God's people, making agreements to them, then breaking it and slaughtering them. Right? Some of God's people will be wise and stand, and some of them will be seduced and fall, etc., etc. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. But the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind with chariots and horsemen and with many ships. And he shall come into countries and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land. And tens of thousands shall fall, but these shall be delivered by, um, out of his hand. Edom and Moab and the main parts of the Ammonites, main part of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries 
and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote to destruction and he shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. So in other words, he's, he's just going to be wrecking the whole area, the whole region, this idolatrous, wicked, powerful, successful king who's going to try to seduce God's people into idolatry with him, who's going to cause an abomination that makes desolate in the temple. Um, and he's going to do this for some time, and no one's really going to stop him. This, by the way, I don't have time to go through it, but if you just take the history that we know, the known written history that we have, the evidence we have, which isn't as vast as historians pretend like it is, but if we take the evidence that we do have of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, and you take this, pas- this passage and you look at the details of it, it's remarkable how much this is descriptive of his reign um, and what happens in his fights with Egypt, etc. Um, and if you look at First and Second Maccabees, you get indispensable history of this period, just so you know. Indispensable history of this period. I know we, we all go, well, that's in the Catholic Bible, right? Well, First and Second Maccabees are still good history of this period. You read lots of books that aren't in the 66 here, I think. Um, just because it doesn't belong in the canon doesn't mean it's not useful. You guys follow me on that? Okay, I deal with that this Sunday. Jude 14 quotes from First Enoch, a book we don't have in the Protestant canon, um, and says this is a pro- this and says that First Enoch is giving you a reliable prophecy of the Enoch who was the seventh son of Adam who walked with God and was not. And Jude says you're getting a reliable prophecy in First Enoch about uh, about from Enoch. It's a reliable prophecy. Um, you might say, well, then doesn't Enoch, first Enoch belong in the Bible? No. Um, and it's a, Well, the Catholics say yes, because somebody like Jude quotes it. But even Augustine says, hey, just because the Bible quotes from a book doesn't mean that book belongs in the Bible, right? And he's speaking about first Enoch, but... Is in the Bible, yeah, exactly. The part of the, but I mean, if if that were the case, then Paul quotes pagan philosophers. Should we take their writings and put them in the Bible too? You guys, you guys follow where that can lead you if you're not careful. Okay, so, um, but this king is is going to eventually come to an end. The glorious holy mountain, by the way, is where the temple is, right? Um, but he's saying, look, he, his end will come with none to help him. So where does end come? Look at chapter twelve. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never been, never has been since there was a nation until that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But you, Daniel, this is, well, let me stop there before I read the next phrase. Um, it sounds like in context he's talking about what's going to happen in response to the, the little horn of the third kingdom, doesn't it? 
contextually, if you're just following the book along, I know you have a chapter marker there, but that's not originally there. Okay? So sometimes you see it and you, you forget the context that came in the re- original chapter. What's the problem at the end of the original chapter? Who are we dealing with? Antiochus Epiphanes IV. And what's the problem we're dealing with? He's conquered the land of Israel. He set up the abomination that makes desolate. He's a wicked ruler. You guys follow me on that? Okay. He's, he's, he's an idolatrous king, and there's no one to stop him. Then suddenly we hear, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time, but at that time your people shall be delivered. Now you go, okay, well, so... Who's this Michael guy who's going to come deliver them? Well, this is speaking to the archangel, Michael. But what does the delivery look like? This is just Israel being delivered under Antiochus Epiphanes IV, right? Except here's the problem. Um, Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Now, what does that sound like? Resurrection. Why, why does it sound like resurrection? Because that's what resurrection is. When you sleep in the dust of the earth and you're resurrected from the dust of the earth, that's resurrection, right? And some are resurrected to everlasting life and some to what? Shame. So that sounds like the book of Revelation, doesn't it? And the final, rev- and the final resurrection, um, those to um, salvation and those to damnation, right? Okay, so now look what he goes on to say. Um, and those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above, above, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So those who are wise, in other words, um, who are wise? We've learned this in the Old Testament already. What's the beginning of wisdom? The fear of the Lord. Okay, those who are wise are those who fear the Lord, right, who trust him, who walk with him, who revere him, who listen to him, who keep his law, etc. Okay, those who are wise shall shine like the brightest sky above. And notice that, and those who turn many to righteousness, like the stars forever and ever. Who, who turns people to righteousness? What, what's that speaking about? It's, it seems like it's referring to the conversion of those who do not believe those who believe. Yeah, that's exactly what it sounds like. Seems to be those who are out there making this you know, um, making the news known. You, you, you need to believe and follow the Lord and be wise, walk in his ways, etc. Now, that all sounds like, though, contextually, it's just talking about the end of the reign of Antiochus Epiphanes IV, except that you get to this resurrection, you go, okay, so then when, how come the resurrection didn't happen back then? You guys follow me? This is also why some people will point at this and say, well, Michael, the prince is going to come, that, Michael, the great prince, or the archangel Michael, is actually the pre-incarnate Christ. Um, that's why some will go there. Um, and not without some good reason, by the way. There, there, there's, I don't think ultimately that view prevails for a variety of reasons I don't have time to address this morning. But it's not like that view has no merit at all. There are reformers, Protestant reformers, quite solid Protestant reformers, who believe it's a it's uh, Michael the Archangel's actually an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. Okay. Um, I don't think they're right, but, but I understand why they go there. But what's the timing here? So look at verse 4. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end. 
That's interesting, right? Okay. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. That, then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on that bank of the stream. And someone said to the man clothed in linen, in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be till the end of these wonders? Right? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things would be finished. Um, so time, times, and half a time. So again, three and a half. Um, so some, some period of time, not the complete period of time. Um, I heard, but I did not understand. Well, I, I, if you're reading Daniel without the New Testament, I understand why, you heard, why he heard but did not understand. It's not easy to understand even with the New Testament. You guys follow me? Okay, so I heard but I didn't understand. Then I said, oh my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and refine and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days, roughly three and a half years. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335 days. But... Go your way till the end and you shall rest and you shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. Um, now, this, this book is sealed up. Twice Daniel's told he's receiving these prophecies. He's saying, I don't understand. When is all this stuff really taking place? Um, and the answer is, seal up the book. It's for the time of the end. It'll be understood when the seals are opened. So, with that said, um, look at Revelation. Go over there. And go to chapter 5. He's in the throne room. John is in the throne room scene in heaven, seeing God worshipped. And then he hears this. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. So the scroll still hasn't been opened. You guys see what we're getting at here? Now, there's too much work for me to do to prove to you that this is referencing Daniel, but I, I, if you, it, it, when I started Revelation on our Sunday afternoons, I told you guys that even Revelation 1, 1 through 2 is, is all from Daniel 2. Um, And he says, seal with seven seals, and I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? See, Daniel wasn't. You and I aren't. The angels aren't. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, is conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Now, who's the line of the tribe of Judah? Christ. Christ, thank you. Good. That's not a trick question. The root of David is... Okay. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, 
with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Um, it's, a, it's a full way of speaking of the Holy Spirit. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down, fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl of it, full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every top tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. Now, by the way, are the elders 24 angels each representing the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles, possibly, or they could be referenced to the 12 tribes of Israel's heads and the 12 apostles. We don't really know. Are the angels that are being written to, to the angel at the church of Ephesus, right? Is that an angel who's actually associated with that church, or is that a pastor um, who's a messenger to the church? We don't know. But given the Danielic context of much of Revelation, it's entirely possible this is speaking to sort of both, if you will. Okay, um, So here he is, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them say to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Now I watched when the Lamb, chapter 6, verse 1, opened one of the seven seals. And I heard... I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And then he's going to start opening the seals. Now, he opens the seals in the book of Revelation. What, what I'm getting at is Daniel was supposed to seal it up to the time of the end. Um, and the one who was worthy to open it and start to unveil what's there um, is the Christ. Right? And so then you see that, that, that scroll opened and you start to see the fullness of it. Watch is why you come back to these... Markers of three and a half years again in Revelation. You guys remember that. And this kind of tribulation and these funky looking beasts, these distorted looking beasts. And you, you guys understand what I'm saying? So there's much overlap between these two books. Now, I don't have, I'm not doing Revelation right now. But what I want you to understand is you're being told very clearly in Daniel's time um, not only about how they're going to get back to Israel, but about a greater exodus than they could imagine that's to come. One under the Messiah. It's not just you're going to be taken back to the land. It's the Messiah is going to come and he's going to deliver to you the new heavens and the new earth. The kingdom of God is going to put all your enemies under your feet. He's going to save you fully and finally. Um, and Daniel's like, I don't quite understand how all these historical events give me pictures of what's to come but I know in some way they do, and God's answer is seal it up, it'll be shown, right? And who's going to show it? Christ is going to show it. He's going to open it up and show you it. Um, and so that's, that's the thing we have to gather. It's, it's not um, easy literature, though. So if you want to venture through Daniel, enjoy it, have fun. Um, but for the purpose of deeper in biblical theology, what I want you to know is the people in exile, God is still 
working on their behalf and showing them what's to come in the future, pointing them to Christ, just like in every book we've looked at so far. Uh, all right, so um, when we come back in September, sorry to say that, um, but I don't have time to do Ezra before my sabbatical. We come back in September, we will do Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles. My goal is to do all that in the fall. Um, and then we're off to the New Testament. The Old Testament will be complete. So if you stayed this whole time, um, how many years has it been since we started Genesis um, and the biblical theology? Four or five? 2016? Okay. Well, there was a long break because of COVID. But yeah, so if you stayed this whole time, um, we're almost done with the Old Testament. One more semester, God willing, and then we'll be starting the New Testament um, and tying the biblical theology and the Gospels, Acts, Epistles, and Revelation. So, any questions? Sorry, um, guys that are dropping in just now that we're ending so quickly, but we have been going since January. So you're welcome to, you're welcome to join us in September when I'm back from sabbatical and, and we'll get into those books. So read, what are you supposed to read then? Between now and September, what should you spend time reading? Ezra, Nehemiah, first and Chronicles. Yeah, Ezra, Nehemiah, 1st Chronicles. Um, keep in mind, 1st and Chronicles were the last, it was just called Chronicles. And that was actually the last book of the Old Testament of the Jewish canon. In our canon, it fits in with Kings and, and Samuel. But in the order of the Old Testament Jesus read, and the apostles read, it actually is, the Chronicles is the last book of the Old Testament. Um, and, and it's appropriate that it is in a lot of ways, I think. So um, the ordering of the canon we presently have, and the order of the Jewish canon, I'm not arguing one of those orders is like, come down from heaven. So don't, don't you know, I mean, don't, I don't know that it matters which order you put Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John in. Um, but as long as you have all four of them, um, there are good reasons to put Matthew first, because I think Matthew's written first, but that's, and that's what people used to think. Now, thanks to German liberals, everybody thinks Mark was written first. Um, just so you know, it's called Mark in priority. Um, anyway, but it's, it's just what happens. So um, I don't really care. At the end of the day, whether Mark or Matthew was written first, I think Matthew was, but like, I'm not going to stake my eternity on it. Um, <laughs> same thing with where Chronicles belongs in the Old Testament. But I would encourage you, don't just rush through the genealogy when you get to First Chronicles. You have like, is it 11 or 12 chapters of genealogy? Is it only six? Is that it? I feel like it's longer than that. Did you just read it? Maybe you're right and I'm wrong. It's very possible. I feel like I just read it and it was really long. Um, let me see here. That's seven, nine. Um, yeah, it's nine chapters. Nine chapters or so. Saul's genealogy is repeated, but yeah, so nine chapters. Here's what I would tell you not to do. Don't just read over that really fast. I know that's the temptation to get to genealogies, to just read over them because you're bored. Um, you don't know what it means, but try to take time to use your cross-references the Bible cross-references can be quite handy if you have good cross-references in your Bible. And just try to follow those names and see, try to figure out what's, why, why they're listed that way. What are you being told? What the, why does it matter? It's, 
All scriptures God breathed useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. So may, maybe wrestle for the summer with why is this, why is this genealogy um, God breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness? In what way is the Lord, um, in what way is the Lord trying to sanctify me through this? Um, and it's probably not just the patience of reading it well. Okay, so. <laughs> It's, and it's not so that you pray the prayer of James. <laughs> Thanks, Joel. <laughs> it is, though it is there. It is there. It's, it, it, yeah, there's a lot that's appropriate about it. But anyway, so it's not the point of the genealogy, though. All right, brothers, let me pray. Father, we're thankful for this morning, um, the chance to spend time in your word. We're thankful that we're reminded continually that you are involved in the affairs of men in ways that we cannot see, that you are, um, you are sovereign of it all, that you, you turn the heart of the king where you will. You set up kings and you depose them. Um, we are mindful that often you bring a judicial hardening upon wicked people um, that shows up in the turning of them over to their sin. Uh, we see it often around us. We pray for your mercy in that regard, um, we pray that you would help us be mindful that there is a spiritual war that we are battling against principalities and powers, not against flesh and blood, and that we, we can't always see that, but it's real, um, that both um, demons are actively involved in lying and manipulation, and you're sending your angels on behalf of your church and your people. Um, we pray um, that we would be ever mindful of your care for us in that. Um, and that you are working all things um, to the end that you've appointed for them for the sake of your people um, and our benefit and for the sake of your glory above all things. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks, guys.